1: At the Mojo Radio Show. We scour the planet to find the biggest names in health, creativity, wellness, strategy, brand, performance, management, and more. Turn this, up. this is going to be
2: crazy. This is Jason Overcome Redman. Hey, I'm David Kosher. Hi, this is Cal Newport,
0: author of Deep Work. G'day, this is Ryan Park. I'm this is Ivan Davies from IFAB. I'm Andrea Burke from the Canadian National Women's Rugby Team. I'm Lucas Fleeting D. This is Tate Fletcher, Cage Fighter. This is the Mojo Radio Show. Or I'll be coming to see you Then we ask them the
1: big questions
0: Oh man, this is
1: such a great question You've actually landed right on the mark That's a, another really good question It was great talking to some clever dudes Franklin. I've gone probably a little bit more in depth with you than uh, that I have in the book
3: I've done like 500 interviews But nobody asked me about this <laughs> oh, wow.
1: And sometimes we talk about darts.
3: There we go. Can I tell you, Dina, Gary's favorite sport is darts. How athletic is that? I
1: think it's uh, interesting that it's your favorite, but I won't be judgmental. <laughs> yeah. Look, it's the only
3: sport that I know of where a prerequisite is a pint of beer and a cigarette. Come on, let's be honest.
4: The
1: Mojo Radio Show.
4: We don't take ourselves too seriously.
3: So you try throwing half a dozen darts in a row and just see how you go, uh, my friend. Okay. <laughs>
4: but we hope you will.
3: Welcome. i got my to, work to the Mojo Radio Show. But it
4: just won't work on you. Hey, everybody,
5: and welcome. Good to have you on board the bus, the big red bus we call the Mojo Radio Show. We are always on the lookout for interesting people, people at the top of their game, from anywhere in the world doing anything. And I have to say that probably this week <laughs> is a great example. For the first time in our little show's history, we go undercover. Mm. Uh I think it's fair to say, strap yourself in, folks. This is going to be an absolute cracking show. Uh, everybody set, Lola? AP, you strapped in.
0: <laughs>
3: Don't ask him that. <laughs> it's a whole can of worms. Oh, <laughs> oh man. Matron.
5: Uh, and Robo, uh, you get the panel. The panel looks like it's actually smoking this morning, so to speak, ready to rock and roll.
3: It is. I'm here and ready to podcast, darling. Did you watch uh, Bohemian Rhapsody? I did, as promised. Absolutely. What a great movie. What a great Isn't movie. Isn't it great? Yeah, it's really good. You are absolutely 100% correct. Make
5: no mistake, darling. It's still a rock album. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, that's right. Even though we might play Madonna occasionally on this show, it's still a rock and roll show, baby.
5: Oh, honestly, Freddie. Has taken my imagination for the last four weeks I think I've watched it three times on Qantas mm. um, But even the way he struts across the stage And I remember someone telling me 20 years ago um, <laughs> Here's a drop of name Rob Duckworth and I spent the <laughs> afternoon with Crystal Who was the roadie for Queen Right And I remember having quite a wild afternoon With Crystal and Rob Duckworth As you can imagine but Crystal and Rob would talk about the fact that Freddie was the only man where he could be in a stadium with
3: 60,000 people and if you're in the very back row, you still reckon he was singing to you. Yeah. Michael Hutchins is the only other one I've heard people say that about. Absolutely. They're, um, they're few and far between, that's for sure. Oh, I'm glad you watched it. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. So, yeah, I'll be watching it again. There are certain clips that you could watch time and time and time again to take the
5: lessons out of them.
3: Yeah, Absolutely. I, yeah, I just love, like, the, the off-the-cuff stuff. Like, you know, we can't call you whatever the guy's name was, Beach, your name is now... Miami. Miami. <laughs> <laughs> I just love Miami. that. Miami. Miami. <laughs> and then and I love the reference to it later in later in the movie when he rings him <laughs> up to talk about getting the band back together and he goes, Miami, it's Fred. Yeah, it's like, just, just so cool. Anyway,
5: love it. But isn't it funny how he said, um, Queen will not be locked into any one genre? Mm-hmm. And I think, gee, if a business took that philosophy that we won't be locked into a genre and we're always trying to experiment and find the next great thing, I just think there are... If people watch it, appreciate it. I mean, it's brilliant acting, musically incredible. The stuff they did with that show technically is amazing. But the life lessons, the business lessons are um, are great. So, all right, we're all set. We should get into this. The
3: Mojo Radio Show.
5: Jay Dobbins is our guest this week, and he was a federal agent for 27 years before retiring only a couple of years ago. And he was notorious worldwide as one of history's most daring undercover agents. Now, some people who have spoken to know Jay from his books because he's best known probably for his landmark effort when he infiltrated the Hells Angels, where he lived in the Hells Angels for almost two years. He was the first ever lawman to actually defeat the Hells Angels' multi-layered security measures, getting inside to become a member of their legendary Skull Valley Charter. And a little cheerio to all the members of the (laughs) Skull Valley Charter who are listening to the show. Uh, Hopefully not. And undercover, this is an amazing story. He played the role of either a hitman or a mob debt collector living amongst the street and prison gangs, anti-government extremists, gun-running groups, drug traffickers and bomb builders. And sometimes he worked amongst these guys as a murderer for hire. This is just a guy, and you talk about alter egos and creating alter egos, this is it to an extreme, and I think we'll talk about that during the show. He has received the United States Attorney General's Medal of Valour, 12 ATF Special Act Awards, two ATF Gold Stars for critical injuries received during investigative operations, the ATF Distinguished Service Medal for Outstanding Undercover Work, the International Narcotics Officers Association Medal of Valour, and so it goes on. So not only is he an amazing character but he's been awarded by not only those around him and those he served with, but also by the government that he serves. So with all that being said, Jay, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate.
2: Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me and uh, welcome and hello to your audience.
5: Jay, today when somebody walks up to you and asks you what you do, how do you like to reply?
2: Uh, what do I, well, I retired five years ago, so I don't do much of anything, to be quite honest with you. Um, Uh, I do some writing, I do some public speaking, I coach high school football, um, you know, but I live a very common man's life. I take care of my yard, I work on my house, I go to the gym, um, I do things with my family. Uh, there's, I wish I had a more dynamic answer. I wish I had a
3: sexier answer, but I don't. I love that answer. There's nothing wrong with that answer, trust me. You fit in really
5: well with our show, let me tell you. Pretty ordinary, straight up guys. Um, Jay, in the introduction, we talked about the fact of your undercover work, which we'll get to in a second. What I'm curious about is you said that you're, in taking on the undercover career, you took on the dirtiest and the toughest jobs why Why was that when most people would fly in the other direction?
2: Well, yeah, I think there's a couple explanations for it. Um, one, like people, pe- people think or people hear my story and they think uh, I'm an adrenaline junkie and, and I'm not. Um, I think I'm a risk junkie. Um, I always liked taking the hard cases, accepting the hard cases uh, for the challenge of them, for the risk of them. Cases that nobody else wanted. I was always willing to take a crack at, Um, and probably the second part of that explanation is that, you know, when I was a kid, um, man, I was just a straight sissy. I got beat up. um, I was soft. I never fought back. uh, I was I was just a pussy coward, you know, as a kid, Um, and then like through adolescence. I, I was the kind of the dork kid, the nerd. When, when all the cool guys were hanging out with girls and, and were, you know, being great athletes and all those things, I was like building model airplanes and, and, and kind of the oddball, kind of weirdo kid. And through those things, I learned, A, from getting beat up, I learned to despise bullies. Uh, And from getting teased and humiliated, I learned to despise people that somehow make themselves feel bigger or stronger by making someone else feel smaller or weaker and preying on them. And those two things, ultimately, when I matured and, you know, when I evolved into my professional life, that's what all came together. And it, it turned out that I was good at undercover work.
5: Jay, take me to the day when you're on the ground getting beaten up and your dad walks out.
2: Well, you know, I was a kid and um, there was a neighborhood bully that had me pinned down in the front yard and was kneeling on my arms and was like beating the shit out of me, you know. Um, and I heard the, the front door open and my, my dad come out on the porch and I thought that I was getting a rescue. You know, I wasn't fighting back. I really wasn't able to. I was getting outmanned. But I thought my dad was coming to the rescue. And my dad told the kid that was hitting me to keep punching me in the face. And I couldn't believe it. Um, And the, the kid, you know, smacked me a few more times and was trying to quit. And my dad wouldn't let him stop beating on me. And then afterwards, when it was settled... Uh, My dad came over and picked me up off the ground and he said, man, you have to learn to fight back because there's always going to be someone bigger and stronger and meaner out there. And if you don't learn to push back and fight back, you're going to be a victim for the rest of your life.
4: With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time.
3: <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
4: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: And you know what? Eight years old, that was a pretty powerful lesson to learn.
4: How did you change your
5: identity Jay, because this is a really interesting scenario that at the head of the show, you said, I was a sissy building model planes. You looked at bullies. How did did you, do you remember the time where you changed your identity when enough's enough and you changed how you saw yourself to move into that place where you took on the bullies?
2: Well, you know, they're probably the only thing I've ever been good at in my life is standing up to bullies. Um, and I'm not even necessarily sure that I was ever all that good at it, but I was willing to, I was willing to try, I was willing to do something. And that willingness, uh, and, and at times probably eagerness to to stand up for someone, you know, like in my job, I took a great amount of personal pride in being a person who stood up to predators and thugs on behalf of good and innocent people in the communities that I worked in who simply wanted to live a safe and peaceful life. But they either couldn't or wouldn't defend themselves or protect that. And they needed someone to help them do that. And I was always very honored to, to try.
5: There are police who take on that role and there's first responders who take on that role but going undercover is a whole whole different ball game and you said that being undercover your job was to pretend to be someone you're not did you ever go too far Jay did you ever find yourself going too far with that pretending where you lost track of yourself
2: yeah I um, I did you know there was uh, like on the simplest level there was times when I was operating in my personal life, in my real life. Uh, One time specifically, I remember I was filling out a check. I was filling out a bank check and I wrote my undercover name on the bank check. (laughs) Um, And I was like, you know, man, that's probably not good. You know, and to be honest with you, uh, you know, uh, like I, I try to be transparent about who I am and some of my flaws and my mistakes. And there was a point in my career, a point in my life, my professional life, where I was doing a very bad job of that. Um, I was staying in that undercover role, in that gangster persona all the time. You know, when I would be out on the street, I would be out in an operation, uh, sometimes for weeks or, or months at a time, and I would come home, and I, and I wasn't transitioning back into the common man very well. And I remember my wife one time told me, you can't show up at this house and treat us like we're suspects. You can't treat us like we're criminals. And then in my self-defense, my response was, I'm not a light switch. I can't turn this on and off. People that do what I do for a living and treat it like a hobby end up dead. And then her response was, when you come to this house, you better install a damn dimmer switch and turn that down because it ain't flying here.
5: (laughs) It's really interesting and I want to camp here for a second because we've got a guest coming up on the show, a guy called Todd Herman who wrote a book called Alter Ego and having heard a lot of his stuff and read his book, what's really curious about this this, that I want to ask you about, Jay, is that he said that when you create an alter ego which you – I suspect you had to create, which I'll get on to, an alter ego to go inside the Hells Angels. But one of the defining things about having an alter ego is you need to know it's a part of you and not all of you. It's, it's quite curious hearing you talk about it because I suspect being in the Hells Angels, it has to be all of you. It can't just be a part of you, does it?
2: Well, you know, uh, the Hells Angels or any organised criminal group the, the reason they survive and thrive and have lasted for years and years is because that set of people are uniquely paranoid and they're looking for anything in you that will tip them off that you're not legitimate. How you talk, how you dress, how you look, the car you drive, the people you hang out with, what does your apartment look like? Um... Everything you can imagine, they're critiquing um, and they're critiquing it like at light speed processing as to whether they believe you or not. And so uh, you have to be good at it. You have to be on your game because these aren't the kind of people who, if they uh, become suspicious of you, are going to start asking you a lot of questions you're just going to get a baseball bat on the back of your head or a yeah. razor on your throat that's how they're going to answer you. that's how they're going to ask you questions
5: you just on that you have to go very deep into that alter ego that you've created do you ever recall because you're there for almost 2 years in the hells angels as one of them do you ever recall a moment where you consciously slipped out of the role and had to pull yourself back into it again because you, was there a moment where the real Jay came out and was different in that moment?
2: Well, you know, I, I think, yeah. And I, and I think that happened actually quite often, but I think there's an explanation for it. Um, what, like with me in my undercover role, there's all different kinds of styles. There's people that like, there's the actor style who like comes to work and puts on whatever costume that he uses to get into that role and he becomes that person. And then there's the guy who's just the natural con man, and he's conning people and hustling people, whether he's in role or out of role. That's just that guy's personality. Like for me, I was never really good at either one of those types. Like for me, it was like what you see is what you get. So my personality um, and, and the way I communicated with people and the way I treat people didn't change all that much. Because I felt like if I was trying to fake that, that that was uh, where I would slip, where I would uh, show them something that I didn't want them to see. So I was just pretty much myself. The way we're discussing, the way way we're talking right now, I talked to them like I would talk to anybody.
5: There must have been, I mean, you've got the look that would fit in and because what I'm really curious about is how far from you was the alter ego that could stand up to these guys and fit in with them and be one of them when you're being scrutinised? Like how, because yes, we talk like this and yes, you would talk to them and I'm sure you've said you made some good friends within the Hells Angels. There were some decent people in there. But there must have been times where you had to prove yourselves. How far was that from the real Jay?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Like... I do not carry myself socially uh, in my in my normal life. I don't carry myself as a tough guy. I'm not. A, I don't have anything to prove to anybody. I try to treat people kindly. I try to treat people the way they treat me. I try to be humble and gracious. Um, I try to just like live by the golden rule and treat people the way I want to be treated. Um, I had to turn that off a little bit with these guys. I, I, th- that part of me still existed, but um, I had to be much uh, rougher and, and tougher and at least have the inclinations for violence uh, to keep up with these guys or else I would have been perceived as soft.
5: Forgive me, I, I don't quite understand the world of a biker gang. Although I've read Sonny Bajar's book and I've worked with the Hell's Angels doing charity work, so I, I'm I'm I, I understand that little bit, but I understand being a member. Do you stay there? Do you do you come and go from the the the, the club, the the clubhouse each day? Do you go in the morning, hang out, do what you do, get in your bike, go home, come back next day? How does that work? Is it? Do you have to go home? Did you go go home to your, your family every night or were there times where you just spent weeks on end at the club?
2: Yeah, there was, you know, I had undercover houses that I lived in and I would, you know, go to those houses. I'd go to an undercover house at the end of the night or I'd stay at the clubhouse at the end of the night. Um, members, you know, do the same. They'll go to their house or, you know, like everything about me that you would have seen or known laid credibility to who I was, that I was Jay Bird, that I was Jay Davis, that I was uh, a debt collector, that I was running guns into Mexico, um, that I was a quasi-hit man, uh, that I had connections to the mob. Um, it, like it, you know it, on three different occasions, the Hell's Angels ran private investigators, at me, at, at Jay Davis, at, at my undercover persona. Really? Uh, and they did that without my knowledge. Huh. And all three times, those private investigators came back and told the Hells Angels behind my back now exactly what I had been telling them. My cover was so good and so well-established and my backstopping was so solid that the, when the private investigators looked at me, And reported back to the Hells Angels what I had told them, those private investigators uh, unwittingly were actually reinforcing and solidifying my credibility.
0: I've got a question on that. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win?
5: And you've got these hell's angels looking at you daily, minute after minute, scrutinising you. Did you break the law in order to do your job to catch these guys out? In order to catch them breaking the law, did you have to break the law?
2: Yeah, yeah, of course, um, because you're going to be present mm. and you are going to be participant, a participant in crimes. Um, you're going to be there with them And interacting with them, and and sometimes uh, arm in arm with them, Um, as an undercover operative, there's there's levels of criminality that are sanctioned and that are approved. Um, I can't, uh, as an undercover operative, I can't uh, go uh, murder someone uh, and then uh, do that in order to enhance my my reputation. Uh, there's, you know, there's, there's things that you can or can't do. And, you know, long before I ever, uh, crossed paths with any Hell's Angels, you know, I had 15 years of undercover experience before that case came up. Um, over the course of my career, I had been involved in over 500 undercover operations. So I knew the game pretty well. I knew the tricks of the trade, but with that, before I ever took even my first undercover assignment, I knew there was things that potentially could happen Mm -hmm. that I was not going to um, allow to happen in my presence. Um, I was not going to allow someone to be murdered in my presence. I was not gonna allow a woman to be raped in my presence. And I wasn't gonna allow kids to be beaten in my presence. And then I figured everything else that comes up, I'll figure it out or I'll figure it out on the fly if I have to. But those were the three things that if that was going down and I was not able to contain it or diffuse it somehow, that I would have to come out a role and and do what I was capable of to stop it.
3: After 15 years of undercover work, when someone said to you, hey, we need you to go undercover in the Hells Angels, did part of you go, um, no?
2: Well, you know, to be honest, um, when I, when I was asked to lead that undercover operation, my first response to the case agent was, I can probably name 10 or 15 people that would be uh, better at this than I will be. Um, I was not a biker investigator. I was not a biker expert. Um, I knew plenty of people who were and who were very good at it. Um, they, were, they were experts at it. Uh, I had – what I had going for me is that I had an established criminal reputation in that community in Arizona. And so I was able to hit the ground running as someone who people in the criminal community already believed to be a thug, already believed to be involved in in criminal activity. And I didn't have to spend a whole lot of time ramping that up because it had been established through other investigations.
5: Were you a person – who took naturally to falling into a role or doing this undercover work? Was there training you, is there specific training they teach you about being in role or did you just have an innate desire, talent, hunger to want to do it? Is it something you learn on the street or is it something that you actually go through training for, Jay?
2: All of the above. Yes, we have training. We, we get trained in it. We get trained in the, in the basic core techniques and strategies. Um, I had a desire to do it when I came on the job. I knew that's what I wanted to do. I didn't know if I'd be any good at it. I didn't know if I would ever have any success at it, but I knew that's what I wanted to do. And then, yes, like for the third element, yes, you learn trial by fire. You don't uh i didn't no one would just jump in in their first investigation first undercover investigation or without much experience and try to make it run at infiltrating uh the hells angels or any you know large scale criminal organization but like i said i had so much experience at that point i mean it started you know buying dope on the street corner or buying a pistol from some guy um And, you know, over the course of time, I bought everything from, you know, like guns, like Saturday night specials to rocket launchers. I bought everything (laughs) from dime bags of weed to multi-kilo cartel loads of dope. I bought, you know, like in the bomb world, I bought everything from like some little uh, pipe bomb that a tweaker made like on his workbench in his garage up to like c four. Remote-controlled, remotely detonated bombs. Uh, I did home invasions. I did murder for hires. Um, I had done other infiltrations. So when that, when when the Hell's Angels case came up, and when the and the case agent asked me to lead it, although I thought there was other people who would play a better biker than me. Um, I was fully equipped to go make a run at anybody in the criminal community and it didn't even have to be a biker. I didn't care if you were black or white or a male or a woman or Latino or Asian or anything. Like I, I'm pretty confident that I could run my hustle on you.
5: you. know, it's interesting, Jay, hear you say that and we, of course, we, no matter whether in the States, the UK, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, no matter where we are, we know – we know there's stuff going on because we see it on the news. But apart from the news, we don't really get exposed to it unless you live in one of those bad areas where you see it day in, day out. And I was talking with a guy who's coming up on the show in next couple of months and he's an Australian jet fighter pilot, an elite jet fighter pilot. And one of the things he talked about a lot was situational awareness. And he he spoke at length to the people he was doing the speech for about situational awareness, which... In this day and age, people have their face at a screen. They don't really have situational awareness. With what you know and all you've done and as deep as you've been, tell me your view of situational awareness today when you either either are at home and or leave your home by yourself and or leave your home with your family. What does that mean to you?
2: Yeah, I think that that acute situational awareness was developed over the time, over time professionally for me because it was a necessary element to, uh, on the most basic level, to stay alive and to be, uh, just to be perceptive of what was going on and and the pace and pattern uh, and the vibe of different situations and, and getting a sense for uh, if things were going to maybe turn in a bad direction. Um, but that's also translated, especially now in retirement, to my personal life in that, uh, like, I, I've got a lot of people out there that don't like me. You know, I have to be cognizant of uh, my surroundings and where I'm at. And I, and I also, I have to be careful about where I allow myself to be. I don't, I don't go to places that I shouldn't be. I don't, you know, I don't go out on a Saturday night and, and uh, roll into some bike or bar to have a beer. Um, I, I, I do my best to c- control my environment. I can't always do that. Um, but yeah, situational awareness and, and who's around me and, um, who might be paying attention and, uh, all those things come into play and then, you know, you're processing them. Your, your, your computer's running and you're trying to figure out if you're, uh, safe Or if you're, you know, if you're in a situation that's going to become perilous.
4: You were
5: on the job and you'd only been there a few days when you took a bullet in the chest. And what I'm really curious about is you said, being shot showed me that I wanted to be the guy that would stand up to the violence on behalf of my community. And it's such an interesting reaction to someone who gets shot. Could have been fatal but your immediate reaction was, this is actually demonstrating to me what I should do. Just take us to that moment. Well, I
2: got hired on a Monday, four days later on a Thursday um, during an arrest operation, I was taken hostage. Um, I was shot in the back by the suspect. The bullet went uh, in my back. I was shot at point blank. The bullet went in my back, traveled through my lung. It narrowly missed my heart and it exited my chest and you know, after four days on the job, I was laying in the dirt and the garbage and the dog shit of a trailer park bleeding to death. And there was blood coming out of my chest. Like you were holding your thumb over a garden hose. Um, I was literally dying and, and in the U S you know, with our federal agencies, we get paid every two weeks. I hadn't even gotten a paycheck yet. Um, And, you know, uh, I I got help and, uh, you know, I I went through the medical procedures and had some surgeries and and I recovered. And in the process, there was attorneys that were uh, trying to allow me to let them take my case. I had attorneys actually in the hospital room. I had attorneys outside my hospital door coming into my room saying, you know what a million dollars looks like? And man, I had no idea what a million dollars looks like. I grew up in a blue collar family. My, my father was a carpenter and my mom was a house cleaner. You know, my dad pounded nails for a living and my mom scrubbed people's toilets for a living. I didn't know what a million dollars looked like. They were like, how about five million dollars? We can get that. We can get you whatever amount of money you want because you were placed in a situation that you were not yet trained for and the government has assumed a huge amount of liability for that and for your injuries. You'll never have to work another day in your life. And all I could think of was to get out. I, 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 I didn't take the job for the money. Money never drove me. Money was never important to me. It's not very important to me now um, I took the job for other reasons. And really all I wanted to do was get back to work, you know, and, and, and that situation empowered me. I had a bullet go through my chest four days on the job and I survived it. And I was thriving and I felt like I was bulletproof. I felt like I was invincible. Um, and I just wanted to go work,
5: you you just mentioned your dad and we spoke about your dad earlier in the show how how, how did your dad shape you as a man Jay when you think back to you growing up how big an influence and what what character do you take from your dad that makes you who you are today he
2: he was uh, my biggest influence he was my biggest idol um, and you know I I tell some Some kind of harsh stories about my dad about raising me, but he was actually a very kind, a very gentle uh, person. He's like, everybody loved my dad. He was like one of those people in life, and there's only a few of them that I know. I've never heard anyone ever say a bad word about my dad. Um, He's just, he's just, he was one of those guys. Um, But in the process, he wanted to raise. A son that was that was tough, and 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 that's what I always tried to be. Whether I whether I was successful or whether I failed, um, I wanted to be tough, and I wanted to be that for my father.
5: If you look in the mirror today, with your own family, what's the image? you want your own kids to embody or to to learn or to replicate about Jay. I mean, we had a guy on the the show a couple of seasons ago who's a sports psychologist, Michael Gervais, and he he had a saying that game recognises game. Kids recognise the game in their mum or dad, they're the superheroes. What's the game you're looking to replicate in your own kids?
2: Well, you know, man, I've put a huge amount of battle damage on my family. Um... So there's, uh, probably for what I would like them to take away from me, there's probably an equal or greater number of things that I would like them not to take away from me. Um, um, I showed some things to my family that I would, uh, I hope the lesson they learned from some of the things that I did, I hope the lesson that they got from that is I'll never do that to my family. I'll never do that to my kids. Um. Uh, but if, if I had to find the positive, if I had to find uh, uh, an influence that I had that I would want them to embrace, is that um, if you see something wrong, if you see someone being abused or bullied or taken advantage of, do something about it. Don't be a pedestrian. Don't just walk by it or don't turn your back to it. Um, we have an obligation to take care of each other um we have an obligation to to help people that we maybe don't know people that maybe don't appreciate us or even want us or or that will never shake our hand but just as human beings we have an obligation to take care of each other
5: it's interesting jabe because i've heard you talk about that period of undercover work particularly around the hells angels and the the thing you said was you abandoned the very people who loved you the most and when I heard that, I thought, you know, it's it's probably not just the work you're doing as an undercover cop, but there are business business people everywhere who are putting their business way ahead of everything else, putting it way ahead of the other things that matter, which is their family, their health... What, what do you say to yourself today when you look back at that time when you know you've abandoned the family, the people who loved you the most, who want to stand by you no matter what? What's the what's the the soundtrack in your own mind, and what would you say to other people who maybe are caught up and not recognizing it?
2: Well, you know that's. Um... That's a, that's a great point. And like I said, I try to be transparent. I try not to, uh, I'm not, I don't try to create some false narrative of who I am. I try to be honest about it. And I abandoned and betrayed my own family, uh, in exchange for my job. And at the time I, I felt like it was for the right reasons. I felt like I was trying to take care of people. And I felt like their obligation was to support me in that. And to have my back in that, and to tolerate me, Um, you know, uh, I I would come, I would come and go from the house during these operations. Over, you know, I I was on the job for 27 years, and my son, when he was young, uh, I would come home and I'd be getting ready to get back out on the street, and my son would run out in the yard, and he would grab a rock, and he'd say, "Dad, don't leave yet," and he'd put a rock in my hand. And for years, I believed that he was giving me good luck rocks. And uh, one of my last operations, uh, I was home for a bit. And when I came home, I did the bare minimum I had to do to keep my family functioning. I'd mow the grass, pay the bills, pat the kids on the head have a cup of coffee with my wife and I was just back to work cuz I couldn't get wait to get back in the midst of the gangsters you know that's where I lived that's where I thrived and this last operation my son gives me a rock and over the years I'd collected hundreds of these good luck rocks from him and I kept you know I always had one in my pocket I kept them in my undercover in my undercover car I Saddlebags, my motorcycle—I had them around my undercover houses. I handed them out to my partners. You know, I was saying, like, man, you gotta hang on to Jackie's rocks. I don't know what it is about these, but there's a blessing on these rocks, man. They're just, please keep this with you. You know. And this last trip home, I'm getting ready to leave, and Jackie runs out in the yard, and he said, "Dad, I got, I got a rock for you." And he hands me another rock, and it was shaped like a heart. And he's like, man, I've been saving this one for you. It's special. And, I, you know, I was a 40-plus-year-old man trying to comfort an 8-year-old boy. And I said, dude, I said, all these rocks you've been giving me over the years, man, that's why I'm safe. That's why everything's good. And I'm going to be done with this in a little bit. And I'm going to come home, and I'm going to do all those things with you that I should have been doing. We're going to ride bikes, and we're going to play catch, and we're going to go to the movies, and we're going to read books, and we're going to go swimming. And, and I said, it's all because of your good luck rocks. And I said, I've handed them out to everybody. And this little boy standing in the driveway and he's got no shirt, and no shoes on and tears start running down his cheeks. And he said, dad, those aren't for good luck. And I, my brain stopped for years. I thought he'd been giving me good luck rocks. He said, dad, those aren't for good luck. And those were only for you. That's for you to put in your pocket. And every time you think someone's going to shoot you or stab you, that's like me being there to help you. You can reach in there and touch it. That is what I did to my family. That's 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 an example of what I did to my family and that's, that's shameful.
5: I don't think we have ever had a story that's as powerful or moving, genuine or authentic as that. Have we have a robot six,
3: six seasons of doing yeah, I this. Just got to, so just, I'm, I'm serious. I actually got to wipe some tears away from my eyes. Cause that, that's amazing, man. That is so, wow. That is just powerful in so many ways.
2: Well, you know, and a um, couple years after that, um, my house got attacked. There was a, a failed uh, assassination attempt on me and my house was burned to the ground. Um, I wasn't even there. My family was there. My family escaped Uh, And I came home and my house was smoldering. I mean, it was like still smoking. And this little boy, the same, my son, the same kid, he's walking around in the yard with a carpenter's hammer in his hand. He's, he's holding this hammer. Mm. And I went up to him. I said, dude, I said, what's the deal with the hammer? And he said, dad, he said, what if they come back? because someone's got to be here to take care of mom because you're never
3: here. Oh, wow. Mate, you've taught him well. I got to, you know, you may not have been around, but Jesus, you've done a good job of raising him.
2: When I I say that I'm ashamed of having abandoned and betrayed my family in exchange for this job, um, that's what I'm talking about. Those are the kinds of examples that I put my ego and my legacy and my, prote- my professional reputation and my achievements and my accomplishments, I put all those things in front of my family. And I never should have done that. Um, and I regret doing that now. And I can't take it back. I can't take that time back.
5: There is, it's really interesting, Jay, because there is a list of accomplishments that you have achieved and been recognized for. Yet your honesty and your authenticity and the first things you said to me before we talked offline was, you know, whatever you want to talk about, you know, there's, there's no off-limit areas. One of the things that's really interesting that
0: I find when... A- it is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win?
4: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
5: Look at you because you're an imposing person to look at, which you had to be in your job. Yet the humility you have as a man is really something very, very special. Like we, both of us, would in a heartbeat grab you and have a beer with you and sit down and just talk about anything with you because of your humility was that something you learned as a kid How, where does that humility come from for you
2: uh, you know I think it I think it came from uh, my parents I think it came from the way I was raised and the and the way I was brought up but you know to be quite honest with you um, yes I've received um, a lot of attention and I've gotten a lot of, of awards and a lot of praise um, and I'll say this um, and and I, I, I speak for this universally. I speak for this worldwide. I speak for this for your lawmen in Australia. Um, I, I've never met a cop who took a badge and a gun and ever expected to, be, uh, to gain any notoriety from it. Um, I was very blessed uh, to have some attention placed on some of the work that I did. But the bottom line is what it boils down to is that I'm a common man, who was placed in some very uncommon situations, and I just did the best I could every day to try to resolve them. And man, there was days when I succeeded and thrived and did some amazing things, and there's some days when I failed and was defeated and embarrassed myself. Um, and it's I'm, I'm no different than anybody else. That I mean, we all go through those types of things every day.
5: What do you fear today, Jay? Because people would look at you and go, you're the guy who walked in, spent a couple of years undercover at the Hells Angels. I mean, you've, you've, you've just told us, you've, you've dealt with, hung out with, lived with the baddest of the bad. Today, as a man, what do you fear anything?
2: You know, I don't, um, I don't fear um, maybe what people would expect me to fear. I don't fear, like, the physical harm or a confrontation or... Um, or anything like that. What I, what I fear is that um, ultimately, what I set out or tried to do with my life uh, on the big picture, with raising kids, and and just the type of person that I had hoped to be, I, I, I fear that 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 I maybe didn't make that. Um, and I'm I'm really trying hard. I'm really I try hard every day to try to come back from. Uh, the mistakes and the failures I've made and I, I try on a daily basis to lift somebody up. I try on a daily basis like I, I'm not gonna flatter myself in saying that I'm inspiring anybody, but it's really easy to be kind to someone and and to um, and and to try to bring a little happiness or a smile or some joy into someone's life, even if it's for a brief moment, um, that's what I try to do. Um, I ultimately would like to be remembered as just as a as a good person, not as a lawman or or having accomplished anything uh, of of renown. Just I would like ultimately people to say, man, you know what? That dude was a pretty good dude.
5: I've got a question for you on that, Jay, to, to put some frame around this. Now, I know you're, you're good mates with Jay, Jason Redman, Jay Redman, who has been on our show, who was shot in the face in Afghanistan and an incredible show, one of our favourites, and he's the overcome guy. A couple of months ago, we had the real pleasure of having Ray Cash Care on the show, which was an absolute memorable moment for us with some of the stories he shared, and he's the decimator. I'm curious that when we speak to Jay Bird, which guy are you? He's the overcome guy, he's the decimator, Who's who's Jaybird? Who which guy are you?
2: And you know, like both of those guys are friends of mine. Um, Both of those guys I hold in the highest regard. Um, uh, They're in in my view, those guys are the models of integrity and dignity, and um, those are the kind of guys that I would someday like to be. Um, and and it's, and it's odd saying that about friend your, your friends. And um, I wouldn't call them my peers because they did something different. And they did something in my view, uh, much more extraordinary than I ever accomplished. But, you know, those guys are both younger than me. Um, And it's, it's, you know, it's when you admire and you want to be someone who's younger than you, uh, it's kind of trippy, you know, it's, 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 it's a reverse of, of, of our life. Um, so like, which one am I am of them? Um, man, I'm, I, I'm neither one of those guys. Um, they're like, 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 like I said, like I, I view myself as a common man. I view those two as very uncommon men.
5: Robo, may
3: I take the lead and ask the big question? You can ask, take the lead, and ask a big question. Can I ask one before you get there? No,
5: whatever. Go on. No, find this me.
3: is. I'm actually interested in this. You mentioned at the beginning of the show that one of the things you do now is coaching your kids' football team, um, and it's actually one thing I do for one of my sons and have done for many years. Um, and I've over the years I've taken a lot of learnings that we, I've taken from this show and tried to instill it in the boys in the team that I'm responsible for. I'm wondering if there's a message or a lesson or something you learned in your time working undercover that you've tried to instill in, in the guys that you're responsible for.
2: Well, you know, yeah, I do. And I, and I think that, that, that people, men and women that get out there and coach and coach kids, coach youth, um, you have the ability to teach some life lessons through that sport, um, and and lessons that are much bigger than the sport than the techniques or the tactics that we teach. Um, you're teaching teamwork. You're teaching how to get along with other people. You're teaching people how to get along, uh, with people that are different than them. Um, you're teaching them that like sometimes you have to sacrifice and someone you, you do something, uh, that you may not get the attention for where someone else succeeds or someone else gets the praise. Um, and and trying to find joy in that um but you know what like like i coach um i'm not the greatest coach out there um like i had a, a very successful sports career um i'm not the greatest coach out there i get more uh back for myself than i'm able to give coaching those kids and i do it for i do it for next to nothing i lose money to coach but it's it's, um, it's a contribution to the greater good. You know, I think any of us as adults, we are as good as the kids we raise and we are as good as the kids we train because truly that's probably our legacy. And, and that is how societies survive and thrive is when good people inspire others to be good people. And then it becomes, uh, it, it expands on it. It's exponential, and it becomes reciprocal. And then those people will teach people to be to be good and to treat each other the right way. Um, and so it's you know it's almost
3: the gift that keeps on giving. Gold, Gary, gold. gold. <laughs> it's a gold Harley belt buckle. Absolutely, golden bandana, <laughs>
5: <sighs> mate. I've got one. Actually, I've got two final questions. I got one final question. Our show is. We take our guests and what we do very seriously, but we also have a musical side. We love our rock, because we both used to work in a rock station here in Australia called Triple M. You've worked undercover at the Hells Angels, you've dealt with the baddest of the bad, you've been a biker, you've dealt, you've traded guns, we've heard this we've heard the things you've done. What's the soundtrack to your life, Jay? What's if, if there's a theme song you go, you know what? When I'm done, that's the song and that song tells my story. What's the song?
2: Well, you know, there's there may be a couple. Like that's a like, that that's a good surprise question too. How many how many of your guests do you corner with that one and they don't have an answer ready?
3: Everybody. Right? <laughs> um,
2: so I was not ready for the question, but I do have an answer for you. I um, I always even from when I was a kid, I loved um, the Leonard Skinner song Freebird. Oh, nice.
3: Come on. Nailed it in one. Come on. You
2: loved, know, and and I love, I just love the line, um, and this bird you'll never change. also like, um, I like all kinds of music. I, I, I mean, I, I like pretty much, I can find something I like in any genre uh, of music, but I always loved uh, the Rolling Stones song, uh, Gimme Shelter. Um, and I think there's great lyrics there and it's great performance there and it's historical. And it's, it's, it's all, like for us here in the US, that song is almost Americana.
3: Gary, I think we have found our first honorary lifetime member of the Mojo Radio Show. <laughs> hey,
5: um, Jay, can we call you Jaybird? Are we, are we are we
3: mates now that we could actually have a beer and call you Jaybird? Are we? Can you
5: we know, call you? Can you call
2: me. You can call me Jaybird, or you can call me uh, pretty much. Anything you want because I answer to all kinds of
3: things, I a lot of which
2: are not very flattering. <laughs>
3: <Yeah>. <laughs> hey, I'm gonna, I, I'm just going to stay on the music theme for one more second. I want to take you uh, into your car or somewhere where you're alone and a so, uh, certain song comes on the radio that actually takes you back to your time in, in the Hells Angels. Is there a song that sort of makes you go, oh, creepy, I don't want to hear that one again?
2: There's... um. Let me see if I, can, if I can come up with it. It's, um, you know, hold on just a second. Let me see if I can punch it up here.
5: Well, while you're doing uh, that, um, Robbo, there was a um, before when Jay Boob was talking and he talked about, I think he was, he was dealing and all the things he'd done as, a, as an undercover cop. I thought, man, that would make a good promo. As he said, I've dealt. I've traded guns. I've gone this. I've done
3: that. It's like, man, there's the promo. I still. And it's I, like, just enough said. I still, I still think we have to do an episode. And to fill Jay in while he's searching, we did a show at the end of last year with a guy called Noel Razor Smith, who was a, a gang, uh, not a gangster, but he was a, a, a bank, robber. bank robber in Our London. Bank robber i um, bank robber and got sentenced to, what was it, 18 life sentences? Eight, eight life sentences, sentences and 80 years and to be years. concurrently. Anyway, got out and has turned his life around and is now a, a, an acclaimed author and all sorts of stuff. But I, I reckon I'd love to get um, Joe Navarro, who we did a show with from the FBI, and you and Noel together and, and, and do a and, show. And David, and David
5: Costa to keep us all uh, <laughs> David legi- Costa.
3: there you go, and do a show. I reckon that'd be awesome. <laughs> you
2: know, um, it, it, that, that's it. Well, a, a I love I love those stories of where people start at zero and they build themselves a fortune, or they make a great business, or uh, they come from poverty and turn out to be, you know. Um, uh, successful athletes or politicians or all those things, man, you know, we, we love those stories. But when you take a guy like, like you mentioned, that's been incarcerated, that's committed crimes and then turns his life around, that guy started at less than zero. And I think those stories are even better. It's hard enough to turn your life around when you have uh, normal everyday struggles. Try turning your life around when you're living in a cage yeah. Um, yeah and when what you've done has put you in a cage um, that those are amazing stories those are inspirational stories to me uh, um, and you know what like since we have a, like on that theme since we have you know obviously an Australian audience one of my favorite movies of all times is
3: chopper yeah right yeah <laughs>
2: And, and, and not that there's necessarily anything inspirational about it, but I know I know that you guys are very familiar with that in Australia and I thought that Eric Bana's performance in that was great and just what a crazy story that was.
3: Yeah. He was He's a
5: crazy guy. Actor. Yeah. So to get us back on track, did you find a song that you... I did.
2: I did. Yes? Um, okay. Guts, so man. you asked me, like what what song when it comes on, like takes me back to that moment, right? Yeah. Back to that time. And there's a uh, there's a Three Doors Down song called "Be Like That," oh,
3: yeah, which
2: yeah. Uh, the 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 story within the song is is people uh, looking at looking out at somebody else's life and wishing they could be like that.
1: I would give anything just to live one day here
2: in those shoes. If I could be like that, what would I do? What would I do? I, I think that 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 that, uh, that lyric in there—that if I could be like that, just to live one day in those shoes—I've um, yeah. I've always wanted to be something better than I turned out to be.
5: Do you know, it? it, it it's interesting, Jay, just to, to wrap this little shindig up. You you talked about Jay and Ray and all of your mates and you've told, I think, probably some of the most profound stories in the history of our little show. And you said you want to be a common man. I've got to say after this hour we've spent together, you're anything but common. I say you're an yeah, uncommon man. Absolutely. and. When I hear you talk and you talk about being a common man, it makes me think of Johnny Cash because he was, in his own mind, he said that the strength he had was because he was a common man, because he would sing to people in prison, he'd sing to bikers, he'd sing to businessmen, he'd sing to school teachers. And it's something that Whalen and Hank and all these guys talked about that Johnny was the every man's man. But when he went through his dark times and came out the other side, he spoke to us all and he, leave us, he left us with a legacy and there's only ever going to be one JC. And I think this has been the most profound show. I think you're anything but common. I think you are... The work you're doing, your humility, the stories you tell, the lessons we can take from this, mate, is, um, is really something else. This is way beyond. I knew this would be great, as I was telling Rob over the last couple of weeks, this would be great, but this was way beyond great. It was awesome. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Thank you for the kind words. And I, um, I, I do appreciate those. And, um, I'll show you how common I am. You like if if you think I'm extraordinary. When we go out drinking and when I'm throwing up in the alley afterwards, you'll see how common I am. <laughs> I, I,
3: I've got to say, mate, for the record, I agree with absolutely everything Gary said. But just one thing, I would put a caveat on. Please don't take up singing like Johnny Cash.
5: Oh, get out!
3: <laughs> You're kidding me. You're kidding me.
5: No, you've
2: uh, you've actually. I mean, when you get mentioned in the same uh, conversation with. Uh, Jay Redman and Ray Kerr and Johnny Cash. It's been a good day.
3: There you go. <laughs> Great. Well, I'm glad we could make your day for you.
5: Just yes, um sir. just one final thing, just for the listeners. I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, Jaybird. When you when you think about the Hells Angels, not many people can say I was I, I infiltrated. I was living in the Hells Angels for almost two years. You've talked about Sonny barja uh, the great leadership that has created what I think, and the reason I'm fascinated by the Hells Angels and I've read books and I've done charity work with them is because I, from an outsider, yes, they do dark things, yes, but from the other side, I quite, I quite respect the brand that they have built for themselves, the perception they carry as a brand, how they go about creating this uniformed chapters and the whole thing. I think it's quite extraordinary. I'd be curious to know... For a business person listening, who runs a small business right through to a large corporation, what was the business lesson you took away from the Hells Angels, knowing them intimately?
2: Well, you know, I've said many times, you, you look at uh, um, at Sonny Barger, right? Um, he took this this ragtag group of misfits and he turned them into an international corporation. Um, I've said many times, if he had used his powers, uh, for good, he'd be the CEO of a fortune 500 company. Um, uh, you know, and he had, he had all those skills he had, uh, he could motivate you. He could, uh, he could convince you to do what he wanted you to do in any number of ways, either like intellectually convince you to do it. Um, logically reason through, what he wanted you to do, or if you just refused to cooperate, he was capable of beating it out of you too. Um, that there was there was no escaping his 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 power and 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 the influence of of him seeking and and reaching his goals. Um, you know the organization that those guys have, and uh, and the brotherhood they build, and the loyalty they built. You know, in that world, the hell's angels. It is, it's spiritual for them. It's not just a club. It's not just a gang. It is their God. It's more important than uh, it's more important than their money. It's more important than their family, than their wives, their kids, their girlfriends, their dogs, uh, their house, their car. It's more important than their life. It's their God. And and he ingrained that in them. He ingrained, he he built that loyalty in them.
5: Mate, we've Conscious of your time, um, thanks again, Jay. This was uh, this was one that will go down in the history of our little program as being a very memorable, if not the most memorable moment of being with you, mate. So um, we really thank you. Where? So the books, the work you do. Where's the hub for you, mate? Where do you send people to find out more about the books, uh, your speaking, the whole thing? Where, where do they go?
2: Yeah, it's all self-contained and it's very easy. It's just at um Dobbins.com. It's J-A-Y-D-O-B-Y-N-S.com. And it's everything you need is there and some stuff you don't need.
3: (laughs) There's always that on websites, always. Right.
2: And when you guys guys make your way to the US and you come through Arizona, um, you got a place to stay
3: and you got someone that'll buy you a beer. Just not at a biker bar.
2: No, well, not unless we want to get beat up.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's miss that. Let's skip that. I think I'm too small for
5: that. Um, uh, you got it. I, I tell you what, I uh, I'm a big fan of, t- of Tucson, and we'll we'll go to we'll go to Big Nose Kate's in Tombstone, and uh, we'll we'll swagger up to the we'll swagger up the bar, put our guns down, and hand them in, <laughs> and we'll have a will a brew.
3: It's a deal. We'll pretend like we're uh, Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday for a day. I was going to say the closest I get to a gun is a mobile phone, so you know I won't have to worry about that. <laughs> Thank you, Jay. Mate, has been an honour. Thank you. All the best, you guys. Thank you. The Mojo Radio Show.
0: Simmer down, you noisy, screaming fling.
3: The really nice thing that I took out of that, amongst all the other gold that was in there, is that...
4: With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
3: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone
4: seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps>
0: No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest
3: registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
4: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
3: You and I were talking off air about spending time with your kids and listening to that, like he's talked about all the time he spent away from his kids and now he's back doing everything he can to spend time with his kids, coaching football, blah, blah, blah. That must be a life-changing thing for him, surely. I think that
5: moment was probably one of the most profound moments in our six-season history so far. But when he said, here's this guy, and, and I said at the head of the show what he's done, what he's accomplished, and he was schooled by an eight-year-old. It's just the most beautiful, profound moment and the other thing that I think we all need to hear, any parent mum or dad let 's not frame this around this is mum or dad, that the word he used was i 'm ashamed and that 's where he started to break down he said i 'm ashamed, and when you aren 't present and your kids are genius, make, make no mistake, kids are genius, they see it, they see it, they know it, they feel it, they understand it, and we take them for granted. But when an eight-year-old says, hey, you're not here and he schooled Jay and he said, I'm ashamed, even though he is doing his best to come back from that, you'd have to say that's a losing battle because you know what you did in the most informative years of their life and that's why I think a guy like that, as tough as he is, to be able to take ownership of that, tell that story to the world as an example for all of us, it's now our duty to take those learnings to heart and, and audit ourselves right here. As David Goggins, the, the US Navy SEAL would say, look in the mirror of truth and have that hard conversation with yourself because you don't want to go to that place that
3: Jay's currently in. It's funny though, you know, because I've, I've told this story about the rocks to a number of mates now. Um, in fact, I was only telling it yesterday to one of the guys I coach with, um, we were standing on the sideline before the game and, and we were talking about this episode and it's interesting the takeout he took from it and we should get Matt on the show because he asked the best question. He said, but I can understand that as a parent, you'd be shattered, but surely you could sort of think about that in your mind and think, but on the time that I've spent away from him, how much of a better world have I made for my son? by getting, rid, getting these guys off the streets and all the rest of it. So it's interesting, isn't it? It's, um, it's all perspective sometimes to,
5: too. Well, it goes back to what matters.
3: Yes, true, exactly. When
5: you're at your bedside and the curtain's about to come down on your life and your career, as a priority, is it time I spent with Jackie, with him face-to-face, making him a better man as a mum or a dad, or is it I was out there fighting baddies and Jackie had to raise himself as a man or had the biggest influence be his mum. So I guess that just comes down to a conversation in your own mind. When they look in the mirror of truth, to say, well, what matters the most? What's the most? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting though. Big conundrum. I think a lot of the sad thing is I think a lot of parents will convince themselves of that situation. And they will say that their work, that what they're doing in whatever form, whatever they're doing is making a better world for their child or creating a better lifestyle for them. Now, it's all subjective. And those parents that are working three jobs just to get the mortgage, just to pay for some third-hand car, just to put food on the table, different situation. But those that are driving flash cars, living in the big home, wanting the big holidays and stuff, when it really comes down to it, as was said on the show, the the Bronnie Ware said, and there'll be letters about this for sure, but when Bronnie Ware came down and said, what are the top five regrets of the dying? What a kid wants is not all those trappings and stuff. What the kid wants is their parents around. So it's, you know, you got to be careful you're not making excuses as to, to justify where your identity is really built around your work. Your identity is not built around what matters. So it's a, it's a, it's a touchy one. It's, it, it depends, but just get the mirror of truth out and have a good look. The
3: link. Mojo Radio Show. All right, how are we going to wrap up the show this week then?
5: It's ironic that I got a letter during the week from a listener of the show, uh, a guy called Trent, who... Trenty. How are you, mate? He told the story (laughs) of his dad one day. They were driving along when he was a young fella and his dad heard Cats in the Cradle and he said his dad pulled over and he started to cry Mm. because of what the song said and the song spoke to him and... Trent said from that day forward he made a commitment to focus on what matters because you don't want to be that parent in that song. So I thought, well, that's a pretty good song because it came from a listener. It's a pretty good dedication to... Considering
3: we just just talked about.
5: (laughs) Everything Jaybird talked about. Yeah. And uh, it's also just a cracking rock song. So, uh, Lola, could you cue up and play Cats in the Cradle for us, please? I'm on it. We're out.
1: Day. Came to the world in the usual way, but there were planes to catch and bills to pay. and learned to walk while I was away. He was talking for a night and as a grew, he said, I'm going to be like you, Dad. You know I'm going to be like you. And the cats in the cradle and the silver spoon, little boy blue and the man on the moon. When we get together then You know I'm like a cool job there. Well my son turned just the other day Said thanks for the ball that come on you teach me to throw? I said, oh, not today, I got a lot to do You said, I'm so good He walked away in a And he said, you know, I'm gonna be like him Yeah, you know I'm gonna be like him And the cats in the grill and the silver spoon the Little boy knew it, the man With a smile, what I'm feeling like that is to bother junkies. See you later, can I have them, please? And the cats in the cradle.
3: Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.